about 12 years ago, I was preparing to go to the continent of Africa for the first time. We were going to travel to um, Maputo, Mozambique, and uh, and spend uh, a couple weeks in Mozambique working on this um, this church. There was a, a church building that was being built, and so there was a team of us, 20 or so, were going, and we were going to work on this. And while we were there, we'd do a little holiday as well, you know, go to Swaziland in South Africa and, and see some uh, interesting things while, along the way. But as we were preparing to go, about about a, uh, two or three days before we were to um, to board the plane and, and head to uh, Atlanta and then to Johannesburg, uh, there were a group of people who said, you know, we're allowed to take two foot lockers onto, this is the day before uh, check baggage, right? You could take two foot lockers onto a plane um, as long as, as well as with your carry-on bag. So if you could just limit what you need to just a, a few items, we would use the bulk of your footlocker storage to take clothes for seminary students and missionaries who were there, and uh, you know they could really use these things. And so uh, there was a, a you know a bunch of clothes that were donated. We all met at one place, kind of divvied it up, and everybody took home some clothes and packed them in their footlockers to take to um, to Africa. Also, you would have the advantage of having two empty footlockers when you return, so you could fill them up with all kinds of stuff and bring it back. That was kind of a nice thing. Um, I decided to save just a little bit of room in my foot lockers, though, and, and add something else. I, I went out for, like, weeks before, and I'd buy soccer balls every place I could find them. And I would deflate the soccer balls so they were flat, like about the size of a T-shirt, and I would stuff them down in the foot lockers. And when we arrived in, in uh, Mozambique, uh, we would be working during the day, and then we'd have some free time, and I'd go walk through the neighborhood. I took a pump, a hand pump, and I inflated the balls once I got over there. And I would grab a ball, and I knew how wildly popular soccer was, football, in, in, uh, in South Africa, in Mozambique. Um, and, and sure enough, I would walk along and there'd be a group of kids playing in a vacant lot. You know, they'd all be barefoot and, and they'd playing soccer with what looked like a, a ball of paper wrapped around with tape. So they would have paper and tape kind of wrapped around and they were heavy. I mean, this was, and these kids are barefoot and they're playing on rocks and they're playing with this, you know, paper tape ball. And here I'd show up with this Nike or Adidas ball and I'd throw it out there. And it was like, I mean, it was like a miracle. I could have turned water into wine and they would not have been more impressed. Here's a brand new, genuine Nike or Adidas, you know, soccer ball. And these kids would just light up. I think in many cases, it was the first time they'd ever played with a real soccer ball. And, and so they would, they would take off and start playing, and they would try to invite me to play, and, and I would try, but they, they were uh, amazing. They were such great athletes, these young kids, you know, grade school age, middle school kids, just fantastic soccer players. And as I got ready to go, you know, they would, they would run up to me, and they would want to give back the ball. You know, here, this is yours. Take it with you. And I thought, oh, no, no, no. And they all spoke Portuguese, so I have no idea what I'm doing. But no, no works in, in every language. No. And, and I, would, I would say, no, yours, and you keep it. Um, and they would be so thrilled. And there was this group who lived right by the seminary, and I did the same thing with them. One day I gave them a ball, and, and they were thrilled and you know, tried to give it back. I wouldn't take it. Then every day when I would come back from the work site, that same group of, of kids would be there standing there with the soccer ball waiting for me to come and play with them. You know, here I am in work boots and, you know, jeans, and it was 100 degrees outside. But I'd go out and play with them, and, and they would teach me, you know, words like sola, you know, the sun, gola. I, I didn't get to actually say that one for myself, but, yeah, um, avore, tree, you know. They, we would pick out some words, and they would try to tell them to me, and I would give them English equivalents. 
two things I learned about those kids. The first one was um, that they were truly grateful. Having lived lives of, of true deprivation, a simple thing, like a soccer ball. I bet some of you haven't had kids in your house for 10 years and there's still a soccer ball in the garage, you know. A, a soccer ball, something that is just as simple and, and common and ordinary to them was like gold. It was like a brick of gold. I mean, it was just the most wonderful thing. And they were truly grateful, truly thrilled to have something like that. The second thing I noticed is that they were amazing without ever having had a real soccer ball. They were incredible. We should be recruiting um, young kids from Mozambique because they are amazing soccer players and they have never had the real equipment. They had to imp- and that's really one of the best, best things about soccer. It's probably why it's such a, 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 a worldwide famous game because all you need is a ball. And if you don't have a ball, you can make one. <laughs> um, you could, my brother and I used to do the same thing. With, we would make these little balls and, and shoot baskets in our house, you know, when it was a wintertime outside. They, they learned to improvise. They could take something that was intended for something else and they make it into what they wanted. I noticed that in places, you know, been to third world countries, I never see kids improvising with golf, you know. Um, you, you never see them with sticks and little little small paper balls out there. They don't do that. It, it doesn't happen. Um, you never see kids with broomsticks and fishing nets set up to play tennis. You know, they, they don't do this. They don't play tennis in the third world. They don't play golf. These These sports are hard to improvise. You need specific equipment. And, and there's a lot of things where this happens, right? I mean, in musical instruments, I lived in Kentucky for crying out loud. I've seen people use spoons and washboards for instruments. And they're good, you know. Liquor jugs, you know, blow into them and make a bass sound. But you can't fake a Stradivarius, you know what I mean? You, you, can't, you can't make something that is the equivalent to a Steinway piano. Out of spoons and washboards, you know, you 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 can't you you can't make a Gibson Les Paul out of you know. Straight. There are some times where you cannot improvise, where there is a certain craftsmanship and quality. The right tools are required. The way to Carnegie Hall might be practice, but it's also having the right instrument. You need more than just uh, hard determination. You need the right tools. Sometimes there is something that is so critical to a mission, an instrument that is so, you know, important to the goal that you simply cannot do without it. In the gospel today, Jesus is praying. He's been praying, first of all, for himself. This is sometimes called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He consecrates himself as a sacrificial offering. You know, just like when in a a few moments we'll consecrate the elements of Holy Communion and make them to, to be an offering. Jesus is doing this for himself. He's consecrating himself to make himself an offering for the sin of the world. He also prays for his friends, the disciples. He knows that things are going to be tough for them. And so he prays for them first that they would remember the things that he taught them that those would be embedded inside of them, and that they would be filled with joy. Because he knows in a world where they're going to face a lot of persecution, they really need an infusion of joy. 
But he also prays for someone else, not just himself and his friends. He prays for another group of people. Any idea who Jesus prays for? He prayed for you. And he prayed for me. He prays for us. Listen to the words of verse 20, the very first. Jesus prayed for his disciples. And then he said, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their words. I ask not just for these, these friends of mine. I pray for those who will believe in the future through their words. He's praying for every generation of Christians throughout time. Until he returns, he prays for us. He prayed for the generation before us, and he's praying for the generation to come after us. He prays on behalf of us. He knows that we need him. Not just those who believe, but those who will believe. And what does he ask for? Verse 21, that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am you, may they also be in us. He prays for unity. He prays for unity, that we would be one. That out of many, we would become one. This is the motto of the United States of America, by the way, isn't it? E pluribus unum, out of many, one. He prays that we would be one. That we, the church, across time, across nations, and certainly within congregations, that we would have the unity that exists in in the Godhead, that we would be just like the relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Now, you know, this is true of Americans. We're a tight bunch. <laughs> if you travel across seas, you know, you, you meet a fellow American somewhere, you're like, hey, I'm from Akron. And they're like, yeah, I'm from El Paso, but we're still Americans, right? And, and there's this, you, you drive up and down the street on, on Memorial Day or Independence Day, those flags are all waving. But it doesn't take long to scratch below the surface <laughs> to find that, that out of many one isn't really one, is it? I mean, perhaps you've been watching the news lately. Yes, um, little political coverage going on. Things are going to get interesting for the next few months, aren't they? And they get to come to a head, you know, and in places like Cleveland. <laughs> they, oh, that's going to be wonderful. Uh, yeah, so there's a sense in which out of many, one, but not really one, a sort of a, a strained one, maybe. This is not the sort of unity that Jesus is praying for. He's not praying for the, this type of unity. He's praying for a type of unity that is genuine, that is a, a unity of one, that we would be just like, in the same way as, the word in Greek is kathos, in the same manner that you and I, Father and Son, are one. This is the sort of unity he prays for. The question, though, is why? Why pray for this sort of unity? Why is this so important? Why would Jesus pray for this as his final prayer for, for the church? This is the, you know, we kind of scratch, we're kind of going back in time. This is, this is the last prayer just on the night that he's betrayed. Why make this prayer? Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the church is essential is essential to the proclamation of the gospel. 
The world will not believe the authenticity of the message of the gospel if the church cannot have unity. Unity is that important. It is essential to the mission. It is not a luxury. Unity is as essential to a violinist as a violin. You know, you would be a great violinist, but if you have no instrument, you cannot play. Unity is as essential as a library to a university. You cannot be learned without something to read. It's as essential, let me do this one, as water is to a fish. You know, you cannot, you must have it. It's not a luxury, it is essential. It is essential for evangelism, it is essential for anyone believing in the authenticity of the message. So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them. So that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them. It not only communicates the authenticity of Christ in the world, it communicates the love of God for the world. Unity is that important. It's essential to our mission. How then can the church have unity? How can we, how can we have this? I mean, is it just a matter of working hard at it? You know, we should have, you know, conferences on unity. <laughs> unity 101. And then we have advanced unity and, um, and unity for graduate students. You know, no, it's, this is not how we do it. Unity is a gift. It comes from the love of God that's shed abroad in our hearts. That God so transforms us as individuals that we naturally work towards unity. That we would naturally love one another. That our hearts begin to be filled with with kindness and gentleness and patience and self-control, forbearance, that we would listen and be tolerant of one another, not always agreeing, not always uh, you know going along whatever, but but having a sense of concern, of, of embracing this gift that God has given us. This is our witness to the world. This is why it is so important in our Lord's final prayer. And it's woven throughout the entire Bible, isn't it? Unity is constantly woven throughout the Bible. I mean, if you look throughout the, the, the scriptures and, and passages, you see this, this thread of unity that this weaves right through. Paul and Silas praying in prison. You know, they're singing and praying while they're in prison. How do you sing and pray after somebody just beat you and put you in stocks? Because you have this common bond, this love for the Lord, this understanding that you are together, that we are never abandoned in this world. Thy will be done, right? The sense of, of God at work in the world. Forgive us just like we forgive. This constant theme of, of bringing, it's a gift. Now it works together in several different ways, doesn't it? I think unity is, um, is an important part of the church across time. That we are in, in, in step with the Christians who have come before us. And then we, we hold on to tradition, not worshiping it or, or, um, or, or making it a, a sacred thing, but, but recognizing the tradition that we've been given as important, as essential to our own uh, well-being. And unity is, is essential across space. So that Christians in America are sisters and brothers with, with Christians in Croatia or, or in Zimbabwe or or in South Africa, or, or wherever we find ourselves, that we have a unity that exists beyond borders. It also exists here. 
in our local church, that we are at one with one another and we strive for unity, knowing how important it is. Um, I remember uh, my, my nephew Jason's, um, I think it was eighth or ninth birthday party. Um, my wife and I uh, went over to celebrate uh, my nephew's birthday. Goodness, I don't know how old he is now. Well into his 30s. So anyway, it was a long time ago. We go into our, his, his eighth or ninth birthday party, and, um, and it was a great time. You know how they are. There was cake and ice cream and punch and a bunch of children and party hats and horns and all the sort of thing. And then, of course, there were gifts, and, and all the friends brought gifts, and Jason opened up all his friends' gifts, and then, you know, Uncle Joe and Anna Abby brought some gifts, and they opened those and, from his grandmothers and whatnot. And then finally it was Mom and Dad's gifts, you know, the last ones, and and I remember he opened a couple of those, and they were really great things. And then his dad goes into another room, and, and he wheels out this brand-new, beautiful bicycle. And, and Jason, just, I mean, he's lit up. He was just so excited. I, I think he rode it right down the steps out the front porch, you know, and down the street, and around the, you know, he's going around the block, and a few times around. And then his mother said, Jason, you have friends. You know, get off the bike. You know, play with your friends. And so he, he puts the bike down in the front yard and, and he, he runs off and they play games out back, swim and whatever they're doing. And the kind of day wore on into night. The sun went down and mom calls in the kids and parents come and pick up their children. And pretty soon Jason falls asleep, I think, on the couch or something like that. He forgets all about his bicycle. Until he wakes up, first thing in the morning, it's the first thought that jumped in his head. And you know where this is going, don't you? And he goes out to where, remember, he left last, he, he last left it, which was in the front yard. And it wasn't there. It wasn't there, it was gone. Maybe somebody had moved it in the garage, it's not in the garage, and it's not in the backyard, and it's nowhere. Springfield, Ohio is no place to leave a bike unattended overnight, let me tell you. And some teenager came along in the night and saw that bicycle lying there in the front yard and just hopped right on it and took off. The very best gift he had received that year was gone. Not because he didn't like it, not because he didn't want it, but he just didn't take care to watch after it. He didn't take care to protect it. And because he didn't protect it, it was snatched away. Unity is a gift from God. It's what he wants for us. It's what he prays for for us. It's what he gives us as a gift. And if we don't protect it, it can be snatched away. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.